Welcome to episode 110, Narcissist, the Skilled Abuser, part two, how narcissistic personalities affect family dynamics, featuring Dr. Kathy Barrett, licensed clinical psychologist. This episode is proudly sponsored by Nexus Recovery Services in Los Angeles, California. By Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello, my name is Dr. Katherine Barrett, and I am a licensed clinical forensic psychologist. I also carry a degree in marriage and family therapy. I am based out of Los Angeles, California, and have a private practice in Calabasas, California. I am part-time faculty for the University of Southern California's Rossier School of Education in the marriage and family therapy department. My primary clinical focus in my doctoral work involved the treatment and assessment of mentally disordered offenders, individuals found not guilty by reason of insanity, sex offenders, and sexually violent predators. I've evaluated many individuals with narcissistic and antisocial personality patterns, furthering my knowledge in pathological personality disorders. Through this work, I began to discover the incredible void in the field of narcissistic and sociopathic abuse. The family members, children, and intimate partners of those who the mental health field and court system have failed to protect. As a forensic psychologist, I have testified as an expert and fact witness in both criminal and civil court. I currently consult and work on cases involving family court, assisting families in keeping their children out of the hands of their abusers. My practice involves helping these individuals heal from complex post-traumatic stress, a disorder yet to be added to the DSM, but essential in understanding interpersonal trauma from other forms of trauma and stress-related disorders. This is trauma that does not discriminate and affects across all cultures, ethnicities, and gender. Today's training will focus on narcissistic personality disorder, how it is diagnosed, how it appears in and affects the family system, and how as clinicians we can work with young children as well as adult children of narcissistic parents. This will be part two of 2019's training on NPD abuse cycles within intimate partner relationships. Let's go ahead and start with a review of narcissistic personality disorder. So Steven Johnson, he is a uh, psychologist. This comes from an article out of Psychology Today. He quotes that the narcissist is someone who has buried his true self-expression in response to early injuries and replaced it with a highly developed compensatory false self or sense of self. So what Dr. Johnson is referring to here is narcissistic personality disorder is actually an attachment and identity disorder that's um, rooted in early injury, more likely pre-verbal injury, um, and works itself into a series of defenses. So it's actually very reactive versus active. So when we look at primary narcissistic traits, again, just visiting or revisiting the DSM, we have to look at the fact that these criteria must be pervasive in all areas of life. Now, the only caveat to that is we may see at times um, certain people 
with NPD or even people who are high on the narcissistic continuum, um, they might display this more at work and less at home or more at home and less at work, but we'll still see a pervasive pattern. Uh, and I also want to be really clear here that because NPD is the, the diagnosis that meets all the criteria, there are still people who can be very high on the continuum and develop a lot of traits of narcissism that um, can cause abusive cycles in relationships. So I'll talk about this a little bit later, but you, the individual does not need to be diagnosed with the full disorder to uh, be displaying abusive behavior. So going back to some of these narcissistic traits, so we're going to see grandiosity, uh, a sense of self-importance that goes beyond any neurotypical or even egocentric person. So this isn't someone who's just, you know, taking selfies of themselves uh, and posting, uh, you know, pictures of themselves or talks about themselves a lot. This is someone who um, may even be outside of reality. Their thoughts are not reality based. So when we were, if we revisit personality disorders, we um, often will find, especially in what we, you know, called the cluster B disorders, sometimes there's a, a detachment from reality that they're uh, unable to distinguish um, something that could be rational versus irrational. So their thoughts may not be reality-based um, and incredibly grandiose. We're also going to see a sense of entitlement. So it could go as far as believing that the rules don't apply the apply to them, uh, which could even be further, um, it could take them further into breaking laws. So if we're looking at people who have uh, narcissistic traits or are high on the continuum or meet that criteria, and they're demonstrating, uh, you know, antisocial behavior, we may even be looking with someone who has a comorbid antisocial personality uh, disorder. There's an absence of genuine remorse or guilt um, if they do apologize or if they appear remorseful, it's usually because there's something that they uh, need need from that situation or looking to gain from that situation. But it's oftentimes incredibly superficial. Um, we're going to also see uh, the way that they exploit others, right? So they're exploitive relationships. Um, we're looking at people who use others for personal gain, um, the inability to separate themselves from another. So the narcissistic extension, these are people who oftentimes, um, you know, don't allow others to have their own thoughts, feelings, behaviors, uh, that, that these people are, these other people in their life are primarily there to serve them. Um, they lack accountability or responsibility for failure or mistakes. So these are individuals who will find any way out of a situation, uh, even if it's clear as day that they uh, brought a situation onto themselves. Uh, we're looking at someone who is spending their entire life bearing and or running away from shame and, and does not want the true self to be exposed. So there, if anything hints at the fact that they could be potentially responsible for something um, that doesn't look good, 
then you're going to see an externalization of blame, uh, finger pointing. They're going to be shaming someone else. They're going to be projecting that accountability onto someone else. Um, so they will very rarely, if ever, admit to making mistakes. As I was saying just a moment ago, narcissism is seen on a continuum. When we moved into the DSM-5, we took things out of the, the categorical space and moved them more into uh, a continuum space. So the continuum can range anywhere from sort of that healthy uh, narcissism and I'll explain what that means to, to pathological narcissism. So one of the biggest, um, you know, identifying factors of someone with narcissistic traits or the disorder is an inability to uh, utilize any sort of affective empathy. So the ability to not only understand how someone might be feeling in a situation, but then also extend that to caring about uh, what that might, person might be going through. So the higher someone gets on that continuum, we're going to see uh, a lack of awareness and we're certainly going to see an incapacity for empathy. So we all have levels of narcissism that are essential, essential for survival. It could be just giving us enough confidence to do a certain job or feeling a certain way just so we go into the world with enough esteem. But most of us who have what we would consider healthy levels of narcissism, um, you know, meaning that we still have boundaries, we're still going to um, see ourselves in a positive light in certain situations, but we're still able to demonstrate empathy. So the higher we get on that continuum uh, and we move towards the pathological space of narcissistic behavior, we're going to see an incapacity for empathy, for affective empathy. Some individuals with more pathological forms may be diagnosed with antisocial personality which disorder, which is what I was saying earlier. So not everybody with NPD uh, has antisocial personality disorder, just like everybody with antisocial personality disorder doesn't fall into the criteria of NPD. However, there's a, there can be a lot of comorbidity. And people with APD, um, we also have the subsects of people who are going to fall on the psychopathy checklist of what we would call more colloquially psychopathy or sociopathy, which we know are not diagnoses, but um, subdivisions of antisocial personality disorder. So someone can start to dip their uh, foot into that pool the higher they get on the continuum. People who are self-aware narcissists, so if we're looking at this from a continuum, someone who might be maybe more that mid-range, um, and they may not meet criteria for NPD, sometimes they're known as flexible narcissists, if they are able to tolerate um, you know, some accountability, they're able to express that their life has become unmanageable or their interpersonal relationships are somewhat maladaptive, uh, then we might be looking at someone who has some motivation to make limited sustainable change. So just a, a quick review on that. We have healthy levels of narcissism, which we all have. Then the higher we move up on that continuum, as long as people have some self-awareness around it, we might be able to do limited work. But most people, 
and especially the individuals I'm going to be talking about today, where the narcissism is way out of their awareness, all of their defenses are up, and there's uh, an incapacity for empathy or accountability. Uh, these are people who their prognosis is very poor. One of the biggest issues I think in our field is we're really scared to talk about personality disorders. We're we're really um, uh, you know uncomfortable diagnosing them because of the weight of them. Uh, we tend to t uh, to treat them secondary as a secondary diagnosis, even when we look at diagnoses. Um, you know, if if we're putting it down on a treatment plan or we're writing it down for any sort of insurance plan, uh, the Axis 1 diagnosis is always going to come first and the Axis 2 diagnosis where personality disorders lie, uh, these are disorders that are oftentimes treated secondary. They're also uh, not taught in a lot of depth. So what ends up happening is we have people who go into the fields who are ill-equipped at, at treating, identifying, assessing, uh, and, and diagnosing these disorders. So one of the biggest, I think, you know, holes in our field is we need to get outside of the DSM criteria and we need to learn about this disorder in an experiential way. And unfortunately, most therapists learn about narcissistic abuse from their clients um, unless they've, they are a survivor themselves. Oftentimes, I will get clients who come in and say, you know, I've, I've gone to three or four therapists. You're the first person who knows what this is. So we need to get out of the DSM criteria. We need to stop victim blaming. Um, we need to make sure that we are not uh, making, equating this with codependency. It's a very, very, very different type of abuse that we'll get into. But NPD is often taught in a textbook and academic fashion. It's very dry. It, it only goes into the, the, the boxes that we need to check. And so experientially, a lot of clinicians do not know what to look for. So many victims know more about the cycle of narcissistic abuse than the therapist. And this is a huge problem. So this leads uh, to many therapists being outside of their area of competency when treating individuals who are diagnosed with NPD uh, or survivors of the abuse. So how do I, how do we identify a client with NPD? Well, initially identification of an individual with NPD or, or people high up on that continuum can be tricky because most people come to therapy to feel validated. Narcissists will often use flattery or supplication towards the therapist. Uh, they will, um, show up as the victim. Uh, they'll use many scapegoats. There's a lack of insight. There's a lack of accountability. Uh, but they will definitely come in. And oftentimes, if they're more covert and skilled, then you, what you will see is someone who's, in fact, very charming or comes across even somewhat weak, uh, where the the therapist gets into the role of actually having actually taking care of the narcissist and really um, getting pulled into the mirroring. So, um, but then the, the flip side of that is people who are much higher up on the continuum 
and are probably diagnosed with the full criteria don't even attend therapy unless they are dragged by a significant other or they're court mandated, uh, court mandated. The other thing we might see is if they're in a depressive state and they have what's called low narcissistic supply and the therapist becomes one of the only sources of supply or validation that they get. Uh, so we, we don't often see people who are diagnosed with the full criteria seeking therapy unless there's some sort of gain to come out of that or they're mandated. Um, and as I just noted, covert narcissists may engage in therapy to seek validation. So it can be very tricky. Uh, when I talk about the word, the words narcissistic supply, I'm talking about a term. It's a psychoanalytic term coined by Otto Fenichel in 1938. So what I'm referring to is a type of admiration, interpersonal support or sustenance drawn by his or her own environment and essential to their life and overall esteem. So narcissistic supply is something that narcissists uh, need to have in order to feel like they can function. It is an insatiable urge. It is an addiction. If we think about narcissism, again, from that early injury where there's this massive void that they cannot fill on their own, they are going to use people, pers uh, people, places, things, sex, money, objects to try to fill that insatiable urge, which never ends up happening and why they cycle through so many people. So their entire life is spent on avoiding shame and regulating their fragile self-esteem, even at the expense of others. So if we revisit the spectrum real quickly, we have some self-aware narcissists have sought treatment because they understand that their life has become unmanageable. Therapists will have an easier time discussing narcissism um, and how it's a pervasive disorder that needs constant attention the rest of this person's life. The narcissistic individual who is not self-aware may come into session externalizing blame and will make limited to no progress. So uh, Dr. Ramani Dervasala, who's a, uh, a wonderful colleague of mine and just a pioneer in this field, she wrote a book called um, Should I Stay or Should I Go? And in the book, she talks about something called the rubber band effect. And what, what she's referring to is uh, if a narcissist comes in and they are starting to work on whatever they believe might be going on and the therapist starts to work on some coping skills and helping them find tools, what we'll often hear from the family or the intimate partners, they were doing so well. What happened? And now it's like they're back before they even started therapy. And what Dervasil is talking about is this rubber band effect, which means they could be doing okay for a while, but then a certain stressor will, will occur. And what will end up happening is that they will revert right back to that original behavior because it's very unnatural for them to practice empathy. It's very unnatural for them to put other people first or to imagine how it might feel and really care about that other person's uh, point of view or emotion. So they can really only hold that for so long because if you, if you remember, they are trying to avoid that shame. So 
any sort of display of empathy evens that playing field and really threatens their ego. So they, they snap back to that original panicked and, and defended state. For those who, individuals who are not pathological in the disorder, holding firm boundaries as the, as the therapist, um, mirroring is, is very important. So uh, they didn't get the appropriate mirroring when they were younger. So as a therapist, we can use mirroring. Um, we can recognize the countertransference and understand our limits right? We need to, we need to check in with the countertransference that's coming up. That's information for us, but we also have to understand our limits. The clinician can do limited work. Um, We may not be able to help them make long-term, big, sustainable change. So we have to really recognize uh, what our limits are and what is possible. Daniel Shaw wrote a a really great book about the traumatized narcissist and what he is talking about in this book. He says a traumatized narcissist is a system of subjugation, the objectification of one person in a relationship as the means of enforcing the dominance of the subjectivity of the other. So, Shaw goes into how narcissistic personality disorder is actually intergenerationally transmitted. It is a relational and developmental trauma that's passed down from one generation to the next and why we often see patterns of this in families and how children are affected one way or the other, which we'll get into a little bit later. So if I'm working with someone who's higher up on the continuum or someone who's even mid-range and self-aware, people ask, well, how do you find compassion working with these people? Uh, To me, it's really about recognizing that this is trauma and that this is an injury. So I'm not making an excuse and explanation is not an excuse, but it certainly helps me understand more about where this is coming from and why they're reacting the way they are. It's a very reactive disorder. And this just to clarify, you know, the difference between narcissism or narcissistic personality disorder versus an antisocial personality, because sometimes they're used, you know, hand in hand. So narcissists are emotionally reactive. They're defended. Uh, they're internally injured, they're grandiose, they lack empathy, they may demonstrate compassion or even care about certain organizations, they may be into animal rights, they could be philanthropists, civil rights, women's rights, but, they're, but they often use their position to proselytize and platform their grandiosity. So sometimes we'll see what are called spiritual narcissists. Um, and we often see them in philanthropic work. Uh, so people will say, I didn't even see that coming. They were so into, you know, animal rights or women's rights or children's rights. When we're looking at the antisocial personality or what some people might deem the psychopath, depending on the level of severity, we're looking at people who tend to be impulsive. They lack remorse. Uh, they can be sadistic. Uh, they're anti-society and not in the way there, you know, there clearly are times where uh, going up against authority is, is, is 
important when we're looking at civil rights movements and th- that's not the anti-society I'm talking about. I'm talking about anti-society that can actually cause uh, real serious physical harm, emotional harm to people. Uh, the laws do not apply to these people. They're completely disorganized. Um, they're cold and reptilian. Sometimes they're violent. They're not always physically violent, but they will likely do things that either um, cause physical or emotional harm. And they're much more aware. When we look at narcissism, it's much more of a defensive, reactive disorder, remember, avoiding that shame. With antisocial personality disorder, these are people who are much more aware and more sadistic and active versus reactive. And some people have both. Malignant or pathological narcissism. Malignant narcissism is is the most difficult and dangerous form of the disorder. So these are people who are dipping that that foot into the pool of psychopathy. So this is a, a, a term that was coined by Eric Fromm in 1964. So these are individuals who have a combination of narcissistic personality disorder and antisocial traits. So we're looking at people with few emotions. Um, They cannot feel sadness, guilt, remorse, or empathy. They may have some awareness, but they don't care. So earlier when I was talking about uh, the difference, we have affect and cognitive empathy. People uh, who are narcissistic or antisocially oriented may have what's called cognitive empathy, which means they're able to determine, they know what someone may feel based on a certain behavior they will display. They know what it, what it takes to hurt somebody, but they lack what's called the affective empathy, which is the ability to really take that in and care and then react appropriately so that person doesn't feel hurt or that person feels understood. They lack that. So then we're going to combine all the narcissism with the psychopathic or sociopathic traits, aggression, antisocial behaviors, glibness, superficial charm, pathological lying, lack of remorse, parasitic lifestyle, emotionally shallow, unwilling to accept responsibility. So it's really a perfect storm of the two worlds. And uh, you can imagine how difficult it is to even attempt therapy. Uh, And therapy can actually be very counterproductive if they are more anti-socially oriented. They can actually use the therapy against the therapist and and manipulate the situation. So they they may use therapy to clear their names, create an allusion to the court during custody disputes, Uh, They keep a very good reputation and they can further gaslight their significant others, really get the other person to doubt their sense of reality, which can be incredibly dangerous. This individual has sociopathic tendencies and will likely charm the therapist. So again, less reactive than the typical narcissist. They have the sociopathic or psychopathic traits. So they are incredibly charming and and they can be calm, cool, and collected. As much as their behavior might be impulsive, they they know how to show up. Uh, They lack a fear response. They'll often present as articulate, well-spoken, motivated, victimized, 
they'll likely show little to no anxiety unless that true self is threatened. So sometimes we call what we'll refer to as the mask drops, and then you see the true self behind that. Um, they'll monopolize therapy sessions. They're the only person in the room. They may flatter the therapist and make that therapist feel incredibly special so much that they start to side with the malignant narcissist. And domestic violence is often present, but projected onto the victim. So the malignant narcissist will be the one that's declaring themselves the victim. Now, people will ask me, how can you tell the difference? If you look at a survivor of, of sociopathic or narcissistic abuse who has not undergone their own treatment, you will see someone who looks very ill. Um, they have very little life left in them versus the malignant narcissist who oftentimes uh, is referred to as an emotional vampire. They're sucking that supply out of their victim. They actually look pretty healthy. And this is generally, these are making general statements here, but you know, if we're looking at it from an assessment point of view, someone who's been in the state of victimization for so long, you're going to start to see uh, symptoms of complex post-traumatic stress, which is not what you're going to see from the malignant narcissist or the, the individual with NPD in the room. So do we diagnose if the narcissist is our client? So people ask a lot, like, do we actually tell them they're narcissistic. So different, different theoretical orientations have different philosophies on this and there's different styles. Um, first of all, we have to really assess this person and, and get a really good understanding of what this person's able to tolerate. We have to develop rapport, which is really hard. You know, rapport is imperative in the work that we do, but, but it's, uh, we have to be conscious of their superficial charm, uh, their potential cycle of obsessing and devaluing, especially if it's coupled with borderline personality, and then their ability to focus on others. You know, you are a mirror to them. So will they tell you what you need to hear? So it can be really hard to decipher what can this person really tolerate until one day you say something and you see that that proverbial mask drop and then you realize that their um you know their their ego strength is not very good. So we have to really assess can your client tolerate discussing symptoms? If the client can admit to their dysfunctional relational patterns, educating the client on narcissistic traits or and or the disorder may be somewhat useful. If this is someone who you know for a fact is not going to be able to tolerate this, um, it, it may not be useful. So we have to really understand our limitations in the situation. So some of the underlying triggers of narcissism is feelings of emotional abandonment, right? These are people who um, likely have unconscious feelings of emotional abandonment, feelings of inner defectiveness, feelings of uh, lack of control or security, sense of emotional deprivation, fear of ridicule or shame. This all comes from Stein's work in 2017, from 2017. So what Stein is talking about in, in this piece of literature is all of the underlying unconscious defenses that cause the narcissist to react in such a way that's so far out of their awareness. 
So the narcissist's modus operandi is to avoid shame and protect the true self from being exposed. People need to become vulnerable in therapy for therapy to truly work. So how do we do that depth work if being vulnerable may expose these feelings of emotional abandonment, may expose these feelings of inner defectiveness? It can be incredibly hard to make uh, sustainable change or drastic change with someone who's higher up on that continuum. So the healing begins with bonding. But this can be very challenging. Some clinicians believe in the corrective emotional experience. I personally do not believe that this is useful with the narcissist. It can also create a, uh, a rescue fantasy for the therapist and the therapist can get pulled into a state of codependency with the narcissist if we aren't careful, uh, if we are not mindful of what it means for us to be able to to fix something nobody else has been able to fix. So we have to remain incredibly aware of what's coming up for us and the reactions that we're having to this person. Um, so, you know, it, it, using a corrective emotional experience with someone who's highly narcissistic, they're either one, likely to use it against you and manipulate you, or two, it's just simply not going to work. So how is this form of abuse different? You know, people will say, well, isn't this just another form of emotional abuse? Isn't this just another form of complex post-traumatic stress? Um, you know, so why are we concentrating on narcissistic abuse? Is, why is this form of abuse unrecognizable or, or even times rejected by the APA? Uh, people will say you can't diagnose somebody who isn't in the room. So, you know, now we're shifting more into working with the survivor of someone who's been with the, the narcissist, the person I was just talking about before we got up to this point. So the word narcissism is overused. It's overplayed. And the true definition has been lost in pop psychology, which makes it really easy to minimize, mock, or even dismiss Unless someone is skilled in identifying this, um, narcissism is vague. Everyone demonstrates narcissistic traits, but we don't all choose to cloak ourselves in it. So this is a, a part of our field that's growing. It is a subdivision of complex post-traumatic stress. It is a subdivision of emotional abuse, but it's very, very different in the way that it unfolds um, and even how people get into relationships with people who are pathologically narcissistic is uh, a topic of its own, which we're going to get into right now. And narcissism is sensationalized in the world today. It has become uh, something we value, especially in Western culture. Um, the idea of really taking care of the self uh, empathy has started to be looked at as a weakness. So a narcissist is skilled in gaslighting their audience, forcing the survivor to be depicted as crazy, smothering, dramatic, unstable, and needy. So what ends up happening is the survivor ends up being the one who ends up in treatment, who ends up being labeled with the wrong diagnosis, 
bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, histrionic, delusional disorder, because we aren't assessing for trauma. Because the narcissist is really, really good at showing up, quote unquote, normal. Narcissists are viewed as strong leaders. They're macho. They're racist. And there's patriarchal underpinnings. And that's not to say that narcissists cannot be female. Narcissists can certainly be female. But we do see higher percentages in males. Narcissists are looked at as leaders because they can remove their emotions. This is something that's incredibly uh, valued in our society today. And in some ways, even uh, admired by people who wish sometimes that they didn't have to use so many emotions because emotions can be really heavy. So it's sensationalized in the sense of, wow, it would be really nice to remove my emotions from this and just make a decision. The problem with that is they're not really removing their emotions. They become incredibly emotionally reactive when something doesn't go their way. How else is this different? Survivors of narcissistic abuse end up traumatized with their own mental health difficulties, creating more focus on their instability versus the covert tactics of the abuser. So they often get the wrong treatment. The survivor does not recognize the subjugation, which is not mutually exclusive with codependency. Codependency is also talked about, uh, it's often talked about as a trait. People who are survivors of narcissistic abuse can certainly fall into states of codependency, but they don't necessarily start off with a narcissist as a codependent. And that's something that we really need to understand. Codependency can be built over time, but the narcissist is so good at showing up as the perfect mirror to that person that they aren't willfully walking into a relationship with an abuser. They don't know that because the narcissist shows up as someone incredibly ideal and healthy and strong until they pull them into the trauma bond, until they get them dependent on them. And once that happens, the person is stuck in that trauma in that trauma bond, um, which then can turn into codependency. Survivors of narcissistic abuse may never have been exposed to an abuser before this relationship, but therapists tend to focus on that codependency, which is unlikely the case. What got someone to this place could have been poor boundaries, which again not mutually exclusive with codependency. Uh, they weren't able to identify or they, they ignored certain red flags, but the narcissist is incredibly skilled. There is a point in the treatment where we have to address what that person ignored, but we cannot skip the part of the abuse and we have to validate and help the client feel understood because when they come in, they feel like they're going crazy. So we have to be very careful about jumping on the codependent wagon and sending them to a CODA meeting. Narcissistic abuse is the silent killer. Narcissism is the silent killer and the rejection of such abuse perpetuates intergenerational forms of this abuse. What I'll often hear and the most pushback that we get is you cannot diagnose somebody in the room, meaning 
how do you know this person was with a narcissist? Um, I don't need to diagnose someone with narcissistic personality disorder, but I can certainly identify traits. If I ask this person, did it feel this way? Or explain to me how they reacted in this situation. That tells me traits. Uh, never will I tell a client, you're with someone who has narcissistic personality disorder. What I will say is it sounds like you're involved with someone who's highly narcissistic. So we are not diagnosing somebody who is, in, who is not in the room, but we are using psychoeducation to help that person understand the type of relationship cycle they are caught in. So narcissistic abuse is a pattern of behaviors. It is not a diagnosis. Getting out of the mindset that it is defined by a diagnosis is the biggest blind spot of the therapist and the mental health field regarding this abuse. So now let's move into the fate of the family. In narcissistic families, the children are there to serve the narcissistic needs of the parent or parents. If both parents are narcissistic, the children lack emotional attunement with their parents and therefore the world. They go into the world without a stable sense of identity. They go into the world not being able to interact with others in an adaptive way. This leads to deficiencies in empathy and unconditional love from the primary caregiver. If you are a child of a narcissistic parent, you are not nurtured. You are not mirrored. You are not shown that necessary unconditional love that you should be getting from birth to about three. They are shown a lot of fear and punishment and or punishment versus discipline. So the children end up feeling confused, afraid, and they lack that resiliency, that the ability to bounce back, um, something we would see in someone who's more emotionally secure and, and with a healthy attachment. How are the children of narcissistic parents directly affected? So Gollum, who wrote a book called Trapped in the Mirror, and it's about... Uh, adult children of narcissistic parents. The book was written in 1992. Gollum says, a narcissist cannot see his children as they are, but only as his unconscious needs dictate. When he is idealizing them, he sees their talent as mythic. When he hates them and finds their characteristics unacceptable, he is projecting hated parts of himself onto them. He is entirely unaware. And what Gollum's referring to at the end is, again, it's incredibly unconscious. If we're talking about someone who is narcissistic and not antisocial, it is completely out of their awareness. And this is how the defense shows up onto their own children. Children with trauma are labeled with diagnoses such as bipolar, oppositional defiance, borderline personality, uh, the trauma is simply overlooked. One of the biggest uh, mistakes we make as clinicians is, especially when someone has a narcissistic parent who can show up and, and at least initially look uh, and appear very charming and healthy, we don't assess for trauma. We're not assessing for emotional trauma anyway. We might be assessing for physical trauma or sexual trauma, but we're not assessing for the emotional trauma. So we start to see a child act out. 
we label them as ADHD. Uh, we label them as oppositionally defiant when we might be overlooking something much, much deeper. So some of the mitigating and aggravating factors uh, as to maybe why a child may end up, um, how one child may be more affected than the other. So the degree to which a child is affected by a narcissistic parent depends on the severity of the narcissism in the parent. Other influencing adults, are both parents on that continuum? Do they have one healthy parent? Do they have grandparents? Do they have uh, extended family, neighbors, anybody in their life, teachers? Uh, so that child's resilience is dependent on the protective factors in their life. And then also how early the child starts therapy, right? So we're thinking about identity development, building a sense of autonomy. Uh, do we, are we able to get that child in early enough? So the therapist ends up being another protective factor because if the child gets in early enough, then building that sense of autonomy and that identity development won't be met with such res with resistance from everybody. They will have more people in their life who, who want them to be themselves and encourage that. You're going to get kicked back from the parent, but that's other work. Um, another, another quote from Gollum. He says, a narcissistic father, this is, this is a, an example that he gives here. A narcissistic father was able to stop experiencing feelings of weakness as his own by finding them in the personality of his four week old daughter. He never questioned the validity of his perceptions. Clearly, she was biologically inferior. The baby's characterization stuck and her fate was sealed. So the child at four weeks is already getting these projections from her narcissistic father. It starts that early. So you can see how early on uh, behavioral problems, attentional problems, academic problems can be observed. And if we aren't assessing for that trauma, we could assume there's a learning disorder. Or we could assume that there's a behavioral problem going on versus the child's actually being abused. So this child ends up one of two ways, ends up marrying a mate who also threatens with the potential rejection, meaning this person grows up and, and engages in what Freud called the repetition compulsion, recreating that original in, uh, injury in an attempt to master it out of their awareness entirely. So they look for a narcissistic partner or the child ends up feeling like a fake, like a fake. The true self ends up being filled with shame and that child ends up recreating. And this is, this goes back to Daniel Shaw's work, goes back now and starts to recreate what the narcissistic parent did now onto their own partner and family. So one could end up more uh, in line with having poor boundaries and, and not being able to monitor empathy or looking at the child then who becomes narcissistic like the narcissistic parent. Uh, some research will point to that, that how that happens is dependent on how that child views the narcissistic parent. 
Are they fearful of that parent or do they look at that parent as powerful and then becomes envious of that power? Uh, developmental problems that we might see. Children of narcissistic parents are loved conditionally, okay? From birth to about the age of three, a child should be given complete unconditional love. Starting around three, four years old, then we're starting to, you know, put a little bit of discipline in when we might be trying to correct things that we might start to see as problematic. We might be saying no more, or there might be some small consequences, but from birth to about three, there should be absolute unconditional love, which we do not see with a narcissistic parent. This is where, so the child starts to see us around nine, 10, maybe, maybe if we're lucky, five or six, this is now the time where the therapist can utilize uh, the corrective emotional experience. This is where it's absolutely appropriate to start to validate, to push that autonomy, to help that child um, repair that early injury. Hopefully we can get them in early enough and we can identify that one, it, one of these, one of the parents, if not both of the parents are narcissistic. Conditional love does not allow a child to develop a stable sense of self. So if you are unsure, if you have an ambivalent or neglectful attachment from a parent, you aren't going to have the freedom, safety, validation, all of those things that are mirroring, all of those things that are necessary to develop a stable sense of self. Therefore, many children end up with either personality disorders of their own or overly compliant and traumatically bonded to future partners. So without a sense of being real, without that true self, a child goes throughout life seeking external people, places, and things to fill the void, which is an impossible task. It sets them up for failure. The autonomy of the child is greeted by resistance and guilt of the narcissistic parent. So anytime, you know, you'll hear, oftentimes you'll hear the child make comments about what, what they like to do, um, what is important to them, how they feel is often rejected and, and corrected by the narcissistic parent. The narcissistic parent will gaslight the child. So the child grows up confused, seeking out relationships with people who think for him or think for her. The other side is that the child grows up and becomes the parent, inflicting those narcissistic wounds, like I was talking about a moment ago. So we really want to keep an eye on how does this child view the narcissistic parent? Because if the child views the narcissistic parent as more powerful that can feel less hopeless than the, the parent who he or she is being abused. Because if there's a healthy parent in the marriage or in the relationship, then that parent's probably getting abused as well. So gaslighting, uh, we're going to see the, the, you know, the narcissistic parent impose on the child's sense of reality manipulating one into questioning their own reality, leaves a child in a constant state of uncertainty, questioning what did or did not happen. Child's feelings are minimized while the narcissistic parent's feelings are all that matters. The extreme divide between the two realities can create complex post-traumatic stress in the child, affecting cognition, self-esteem, and the attempt to close the divide is met with further alienation from the narcissistic parent. So what you will see is once we start repairing this in therapy, 
that narcissistic parent is going to start to reject this. Now, let's say you start to see the adult child. Now, the child has grown up and you're seeing him or her for the first time. You're seeing them for the first time. And they come into your office. They've never had therapy before. As the clinician, we must help the client identify the inner child's need to satiate the narcissistic parent. The negative inner parent distorts the client's reality and forces the individual to believe that he or she cannot handle the real world or does not deserve unconditional love. So Patrick Carnes, who wrote a book called The Betrayal Bond, he talks a lot about CPTSD and he talks about trauma bonding. He will say they are often not able to discern when someone is being exploitive or abusive. So they choose people that are familiar, uh, who are often abusive, or they're, they're unable to discern if they're talking to someone who is manipulating them. So the clinician can assist the individual in putting together a dialogue or narrative to the inner parent. So thinking about that super ego, how do we talk to that internal critic? Critic. So do we tell the survivor what we see? Well, it depends. You know, if we're not treating the abuser, can we ethically identify the disorder? No, we can't say that their parent had NPD, but we can say that they had narcissistic behavioral patterns, and this is what this means. If working with the individual going through the abuse, it's important that the individual understands what's happening to them. Knowledge is power. This is part of the healing. This is part of what they're looking for. This is part of the answer. They can then learn to not personalize what happened to them. But here's what we don't want to do. What we don't want to do is tell the client to educate their partner or their parent. This could perpetuate the abuse because this narcissistic parent or partner is going to completely reject the idea that they're a narcissist and they're going to explode onto them and they're going to project it onto them. When we're dealing with custody battles, this is something that comes up quite a bit in my work. You know, the courts just hate this word. They just don't want to go there. And narcissists are incredibly skilled at gaslighting the court. Uh, what we see oftentimes are false parental alienation cases. Uh, this is, this is the, one of the number one weapons in their arsenal. It's used to help a narcissist look like the victim. There's a reason why parental alienation is not universally recognized in the mental health field. The reason by past research has been rejected. Um, it's been made to look like the mother is crazy or the healthy parent is crazy. Alienation is a term used to validate the oppressor and puts children back with their abusers. In the past 10 years, we've seen over 760 children die at the hands of their abusers because the courts put them back. That doesn't mean that parental alienation isn't a real thing. It means that it's often used by narcissistic parents. It's the strongest weapon in custody cases. 730 reports, which are what we call them in the state of California, 730 reports are, are custody uh, eva evaluations used to see if which parents are fit to actually have custody of the child. Um, 730 re reports are oftentimes invalid. There's a utilization of culturally insensitive tools and bias. Courts want hard evidence. The law is black and white. Human behavior is complex. Courts want to know how someone can be diagnosed without being in the therapy room. Courts want to know how narcissism is enough of a reason for a parent to be considered unfit. 
Courts are bothered by these discussions, mostly because evaluation shouldn't be riddled with diagnostic labels that divert attention away from functional abilities of the parent. The court is exhausted by this. So what is a 730 evaluation? In State of California Penal Code 730 or 3110, the 730 evaluation is a study of the family, its members, and their relationship with the intent of restructuring parental rights and responsibilities concerning children. Child Custody and the Courts of California, St. Clair 2020 is a good reference if you want to look up this article, St. Clair 2020. State of California Evidence Code 730 gives the judge authority to order experts to investigate and make an evaluation on a family in a child custody case. Either parent involved in a child custody case is allowed to request an evaluation. After such request, a judge will assign someone to conduct the evaluation. Here's the problem. The discussion of psychopathology in child custody evaluations is often discouraged. So, so Dr. Craig Childress, who has written at length about this topic and is an evaluator, said child custody evaluators are actually instructed not to identify parental pathology in their reports. They are specifically instructed by their standards of practice not to identify parental psychopathology. It doesn't say exactly don't identify it, but it will say it discourages. It discourages. So don't talk about narcissistic personality disorder. Don't talk about borderline personality disorder. And it only cautions that evaluators shall give careful consideration to the inclusion of diagnostic labels in their reports. A professionally temperate euphemistic statement for don't do it because diagnostic labels can divert attention from the focus of the evaluation. So the implication of standard 4.6 is clear. Don't label a parent's pathology as borderline or narcissistic. So this comes out of attachment-based parental alienation, Dr. Craig Childress. Really good stuff. So as, as you're listening to this, you're realizing that families who are trying to get their children away from their abusers and it goes into the court system can make it very difficult. So when you can go no contact with your abuser, what do you do? We have a term in the culture called gray rocking, which is the power of neutrality um, that we can use at least temporarily. Uh, what I suggest to people who have to have contact due to court mandates, uh, they might not be able to gray rock. Sometimes we call it yellow rocking, which means we just give enough information to respond. So what this means is we're trying to escape without triggering a rage in this parent or this partner. So we want to offer boring, monotonous responses to not inflict the drama and chaos the individual is looking for. So you become this unsatisfying pursuit, you become boring, and they seek elsewhere. They seek this chaos elsewhere. As a clinician, do not encourage your client to have meaningful and rational conversations with these individuals. It will re-traumatize and stress your client. Minimal interaction. So much of our work as clinicians is to help our clients decipher what is important to react to and what can be ignored. Many of our clients have been triggered by their abuse of loved ones for months or years and are used to defending themselves or trying to prove their abusive partner uh, that they've lied. We just want to keep them away from that. It's not going to work. Um, you know, 
individuals do not see their partners as individuals and therefore only work from the framework of their own emotional, narcissistic, cognitive experience. So what what your client will say to this person will not matter. Your client's going to get trapped in exhausting cyclical conversation and gaslighting. So what do we do? How do we help? Quote from Viktor Frankl, when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. This is now when we start to really help them and, and help them look at how they may have gotten caught into this. Your client should not be shamed for loving the narcissist, but must understand the limitations in sustainable change of that person. So according to Joel Paris, professor of psychiatry, this comes out of Dr. Romney's book, Should I Stay or Should I Go? He says, according to Joel, unless the therapist is careful, therapy may even foster narcissism. The idea of believing the right situation or event could help change the narcissist may foster the delusion that the client can save their loved one. So... When clinicians are unable to identify the narcissist in the therapy dynamic, it may force the partner to believe they must accept the individual as he or she is. This is damaging, re-traumatizing, and perpetuates dependency and the need for validation from the narcissistic individual. It is not our job to tell a client to leave, but rather help them manage their expectations if they stay. So all in all, the take-home points in all of this is helping families helping children develop that sense of autonomy, minimizing contact. If they're living with the narcissistic parent, if you are the clinician, helping them find that sense of self, working with the healthy parent, if that is an option, but more, most likely, or more realistically, being able to recognize when this dynamic is going on. So we do not further perpetuate the abuse that's going on in the home. Thank you so much for your time today. I hope this was useful. Um, take care. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.